this is Swampside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. In this episode, we change things up a little bit and focus more on the current events aspect of that description. We're joined by Victoria and Gravesend. Recorded in September, we had a loose conversation, uh, catching up on the 9-11 anniversary, the trajectory of the war on terror, and towards the end, we touched a little bit on the nature and meaning of the Capitol riots. Let me tell you, kids, about the three most foremost scholars on 9/11. I'm talking, <laughs> I'm talking Raekwon, I'm talking Mos Def, and I'm talking Moral Technique. Okay, I mean, these kids, <laughs> these kids are gonna get these these guys are gonna give you children the truth about what happened that day. Alex Jones gets an honorary mention. I mean, say what you want. Alex Jones was on the radio that very same day. It was like, this is the beginning, folks. This is this obviously an inside job, and they're using it <laughs> like. <laughs> Like, that's a big reason Joe Rogan's a fan of him. He always tells that story like, wow, like this guy's on the radio basically saying 9-11's fake. This is cool. <laughs> yeah, that, that seems like something Joe Rogan would say. Yeah. And honestly, though, I kind of respect it, though. Like, that's... I'm, and in that time, like, considering, like, how crazy shit got on the... Like, in you know, culturally at that time, Alex Jones was probably one of the saner people just by accident. Yeah. He did, yeah, he did like, eventually go quite far off the deep end, though. Well, when he starts inviting, you know, Alexander Dugan and shit, yeah. Well, he, I mean, he always had cranks on, but here's, here's the thing about Alex Jones, right? Like, I know in the last few years, there's been, like, a big what to do about, like, a supposed red-brown alliance, right? But I think that this contemporary anxiety is something that's basically new because anybody who's concerned about that would be shitting their pants <laughs> And anything that happened between like 1998 and like 2013, <laughs> because pretty much everything, right? Anti-globalization, anti-war, right. Occupy, right. all that yeah. stuff had elements of all. guys like Alex Jones, paleocons, yeah. libertarians, and other assorted right-wing cranks that were in the mix. And Alex Jones was definitely an artifact of that period. That's why he was kind of adjacent to all of like those left movements to a certain extent. Um, it isn't the turning point comes. And this was fucked up around Black Lives Matter, right? Yeah. That's basically where things shift and he starts to really pivot directly into essentially being an adjunct to the Republican Party. Yeah. I remember in college there was a comic book by Alex Jones. And it actually mentioned, like, what is it, the business plot of the 30s with, like, Smiley Butler and everything. I remember, like, when I was in college, I was like, oh, this guy feels like some kind of weird kind of lefty sort of dude. You know, again, it's like it's like that typical postmodern subject where it's like your ideology is just this inconsistent. Like, oh, some left wing, some right wing, whatever. It's all yeah, whatever fits the you know makes me edgy, looks like makes me look like Morpheus from the Matrix. And then Black Lives Matter happens, and it's like, sorry, this just got too black for me. No, like I remember. But you see how much of that stuff is a shadow narrative for some outcome of adopting the worldview. You, you can start to see, like, how ideology works there. Yeah, I knew the turning point came when he did, like, a Black Lives Matter protest outside an abortion clinic. I was like, okay, I don't like where this is going. 
Oh, crypto anti-Semitism is one thing, sir, but I will not have you engage in this kind of. Yeah, you, you, you would, you would, Jake. <laughs> also, LMAO crypto. Well, no, he, he, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. He thinks, he thinks that he respects his Jewish friends. He just doesn't like this cabal. Okay, this cabal of people that they have nothing to do with the Jews. Okay. There's just this cabal that controls everything. He's, he's like David Icke. Like it's, like it's not the Jews; it's the aliens who the Jews were kind of aligned right, with. The now they're not, but if they are, then fuck them. But no, in fact, Ike it Ike has uh, identified that his interdimensional lizards as Jews. So Ike is a little more clairvoyant about what he's doing. Well, Alex Jones, yes, Alex Jones is a true believer. Yeah, no, Ike knows. Ike knows. Ike has made comments that Alex Jones hasn't. And, like, Alex Jones plays big identity politics about, like, you know, we save, save the Jews because, you know, kind of, yeah, it's, uh... Okay, I, I want to I I get this back on the rails here a little bit. Because I felt like, until we, until we got off onto this, we were kind of almost segueing into a transition of, like, one of the first things I wanted to talk about. Um, almost. Yeah, we were almost we were almost there. So, uh, you know, it's I mean, it's been a while since on this show we've like addressed current events, you know, directly. So I feel like a lot's happened. I kind of want to just yeah. take stock. But I think that you know, in in this month, there's kind of very two auspicious anniversaries that both represent two of the kind of major, you know, like you could say like social and political crises of America in the 20th century, which is to say the world because everything. It's our problem becomes everyone else's problem in the midst of the third. And the first, of course, being the 20th anniversary of 9-11. At Blue's Clues, of course. Oh. And the second, of course, okay. uh, 10th anniversary of Occupy, which itself was a response to the crisis 2008, right? So I kind of want to just like take a second to reflect on that, right? Because we basically we've just witnessed a full stop pullout out of Afghanistan, which honestly, I didn't know. I didn't know what was going to happen. And I would have, ex- I mean, it was initiated under Trump and Biden basically just carried it out and didn't reverse course, which I actually didn't expect. I expected like somebody like Trump would be more likely to do that. Um, Me too. Me too. Well, he did. He did slow roll it a little bit, but not, not as much as I had, I had thought he would have. Well, and I think he was convinced uh, by advisors that it was going to look bad on the exit and they didn't want to have that happening during election time. Because, again, the Democrats would have 100% have hammered them on that. Um, yeah. Much in the same way that they that they uh, dry ran some very early vaccine skepticism. <laughs> <laughs> what it was what, what, Part of the thing that was fascinating to watch was that there was a few aspects. One was the fact that seeing what it looks like when the media not only stops carrying water for Biden 100%, but actually actively turns on him and goes after him the same kind of way that they would Trump. Um, but was he, what was even more fascinating was that it didn't work because if they had done this kind of f- full court press against Trump, well, they already hate him anyway. So that would have constituted no form of leverage. But doing this sort of thing to Biden might have actually mattered because he would be losing something. He has something to lose there. On the other hand... He's also old, and on some level, maybe he doesn't care, <laughs> you know. 
Well, Biden, Biden kind of shows the same contempt for the media that Trump does, but he he will kind of pat it with like, of course, I respect the media, but also the shut up, Jack, the kind of deal. Um, Jake, you're, you've uh, pointed out a number of these like incidents where he'll basically like say something really aggressive to a reporter and the media was fawning over him. Oh, that's our Biden. Um, and like, ev- like seeing... I saw, we saw some really incredible things, and only the right were, only the right wing media was talking about some pretty strange strange incidences. And usually, like like gotcha politics and people doing weird things in public is you know, I don't know. It, it, it's like really cheap stuff. But for for the main contender of like the of of one of the major party and you know the winner of the presidency to be doing like things like sucking his life's finger and saying that we're going to cure cancer in a fit of excitement and well, you know we all, beat though like, with like these mnra <laughs> vaccines we actually might i mean that would be great but that's not why he said it you, you right, understand right 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 like, well, well not not only that but like the other thing about like um the the media's attack on biden like um I remember, like, I, li- I listened to this podcast with Daniel Besner. Fuck, I, the name is escaping me now. It was mentioned in the... American Prestige? Yes. And I remember he was talking about it, and he basically said, like, look, Biden is an old-school kind of politician, like, of the days of, like, Lyndon Johnson, where it's, like, it's all, like, crude power politics within the halls of power, and it's kind of a little bit disconnected from the media. And the media, like he said, is just full of, like, these... You know, crunchy, uh, uh, meritocratic, like, professionals. Fawning suck-ups. Yeah, exactly. So, like, they don't understand, like, this guy's just not receptive to them because he isn't one of them. So that's sort of, like, why I feel like he's kind of immune because, like, it's not even so much like I think, like, Biden is just, like, oh, he's just this, like, tough-as-nails guy. He kind of, he probably is, you know, relative to these people. But, like, I also just think he's just not trained like they are. Well, yeah, I, I, see, I see what you mean. Like, he isn't as invested in, like, what media figures think of him as previous presidents. The other thing that got me about the Afghanistan thing was just, you know, I mean, again, this is, like, not even an original point, but even I still can't wrap my head at how fucking quickly that whole thing collapsed. Even the Soviet regime or the Soviet-backed, like, socialist regime in <laughs> Afghanistan fucking lasted longer than this shit. Fucking South Vietnam lasted longer. You know, prior U.S. regimes had had at least uh, provided nominal services to within the bounds of of what the government actually controlled. Um, You know, and and especially if you go back into the post World War II, you know, just a shit ton of money actually went into rebuilding infrastructure, providing basic services, like doing make work jobs. Like things, things that you know, bread and butter issues, uh, and then you go into like South Vietnam. They were still doing some of that, but a lot less. You 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 roll forward into into Afghanistan. You know they they nominally put sixty eight whatever it was billion dollars actually into Afghanistan. The vast majority of it went to the Afghan army. But they also spent like two trillion dollars on it, and that was just purely uh, uh, like Keynesian war spending. Like the the actual 
the the actual uh, Afghan government, as it was set up by the United States, was was even less proficient at providing basic services than the Taliban. It was it was less able to maintain stability, even in like nominally Afghan national government controlled territory. The only the only thing that provided literally any stability was the United States armed forces. And they just couldn't give enough of a shit. Yeah, exactly. They were just there. They were there to kick down doors, shoot people and take prisoners. That's all they were there to do. Yeah. I mean, the thing is like Biden in like the big speech he said in the exit, it's like, we're not doing nation building anymore. It's like, well, we weren't really doing nation building when we were there. Yeah. And that's what gets me because it's like, what gets me is, is, is it makes the whole project in Afghanistan sound like one big con, which I mean, I, I know people were saying that for years, but like, for me, it's just like, well, yeah, it was very clear because the pattern was, you know, there's basically the generals don't get paid as much as you might think. So there's a revolving door between them and the private sector. So it's basically in their interest to keep the thing going. So that when they drop out, they can go to whatever X company and get their payout. Um, and, and similarly, they can bolster their careers. The pattern was simple. Somebody, somebody takes command there. Uh, they stabilize the situation with a surge or something like that. And then they leave. And then it collapses immediately the second they're gone. And the next guy has to stable it. Right stabilize it so it's just it was just the entire thing was as you know a sort of ponzi scheme that right. just kind and of even, rolled over to the next person even the whole narrative of the surge is functionally like a lie like the yes. only thing the only thing that the surges actually did was just bring in crates of money to people who like local warlords who already had some kind of nominal control over a piece of territory and said, we'll just give you a billion dollars. If you stop attacking us. Are things so bad that like essentially what's going on is it's not just like, I feel like money is just being allocated elsewhere. It almost sounds like things are failing. And what the people in charge are doing is they're not trying to, you know, fix anything or do anything. They're just like the people on the Titanic. The rich people are like, hey, look, listen, let's just get our shit on the lifeboats, lock everybody else down at the bowels of the ship and just fucking make, and just make bank. Just get out, right? And that's what, like, Afghanistan almost feels like to me. It feels like it's not just a con. It's a con that is happening at a time when things are failing and falling apart and a bunch of people are just saving their own ass. Well, it yeah, it's it's laid bare for everyone the incoherence of American power, right? And the fact that yeah. we really can't we can't even imagine. do the empire right, like, and that's okay. the thing that's keeping everything going. So, well, we can't. I mean, we can't do the empire right, but I think it, yeah, it also shows that they really can't even use American power in an, an imaginative way, you know. And it, it's, I mean, I think Adam Curtis pointed this out in Bitter Lake that you know essentially we did turn them into Americans. Like, we flooded their country with opiates. Uh, they set up a corrupt, uh, illegitimate government. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, like, it, like it, it basically, you know, it was, it was racked by underdevelopment and, and violence. Like, you know, we basically did turn the place into America. But, like... Um, I guess, like, the thing that gets me is, like, I don't understand, like, why more Americans aren't more enraged. You know, well, that's but, a, that's the thing. It, it doesn't affect them directly, the, right? And the, it, it's because it's, 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 it's been 20 years. Yeah, what's there to actually be like enraged about? Like, obviously, there's there's the moral angle to it, 
But whether or not the United States government is at war in some foreign place has basically no impact upon the day-to-day lives of most people in America. I guess, yeah. But, like, I guess, like, what I'm saying about the enraged part is, like, I'm not even saying, like, look, I'm totally cynical about Americans. I think, like, most Americans are like my relatives, right? Like, oh, it's a brown person? Fuck them, right? So they they probably, probably most Americans, like, who gives a shit about these fucking whatever racial epithet you can think of for the people of Afghanistan, right? What I'm more concerned, it's, like, how, it's, like, where did our money go? And I'm surprised, like, more people aren't angry at that. You know, except for the usual suspects. I mean, I think the difference to the American public, you know, that it characterized, that's why it went on as long as it did. That's why they got as many as at best to do it. Um, but yeah, it, it, that's because they wouldn't have been able to, they can't basically can't, they, they depend on Americans' indifference because they know that Americans are broadly hostile at this point to foreign intervention. And I think that is kind of a legacy. There can be said to be one of, of the uh, anti-war movements because if you look at if you look at what they did what the bush administration did uh in the middle east it was afghanistan then iraq those moves especially iraq only make sense geostrategically if iran is next and i think that the the anti-war pushback to iraq and the broad you know public hostility to indifference to it that crept up kept Iran from being next. And I think at this point, it's pretty clear that Iran is probably never going to be next. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, like, if we see how, like, how Iraq, is, how Iraq is doing, you know, not, not to mention the fact that, like, like, I really feel like if America invades Iraq, that will really be the beginning of the end. That will be, like, some... That will be, like, our World War One. If, if they invade Iran. Iran, yeah. If, if, if America ever, ever, ever thinks to invade Iran, that will really be like our, like that will be like I think that will be the thing that would break us. I mean, they would need another cautious belly. They would need to have their friends in the Saudis like do another attack, uh, in some way. But I think even now, I don't know if you would have. I think if you had a another nine eleven now, the level of skepticism about it would be much higher. Oh yeah, and even at I this point, they're would. starting to. They are starting to to open the files on the Saudi involvement. Now, how much that is actually going to get opened, I don't know. It seems like they opened the first packet of it so that they could be like, oh, see, there's not, not much here. Uh, we're going to open Jake, some more later. Can I ask you a question? How deep does the rabbit hole go in your point of view? I don't think, I don't, I don't know if we've ever, uh, you know, just talked basic brass tacks on 9-11. You're, you're giving me big truthy vibes, and I just want to know where you stand. Well, it's a matter of record that most of the 9-11 hijackers are Saudi. It's also a matter of record that Osama bin Laden had direct ties. He, he comes from Saudi royalty. Like, the, the entire reason he was pissed was that when Saddam looked, uh, invaded Kuwait and looked like he might move into Saudi Arabia, he basically told his Saudi relatives, listen, I'll go to, Af- I'll, I'll go to Afghanistan and raise an army for you. We'll defend Mecca and our holy cities with our own strength. We don't need these Americans. The Saudis said, no, no, we're bringing the Americans. And he's like, well, this is fucking, this is, this is Haram. This is bad. So the, uh, the connections are pretty well known, which is a big reason why we invaded Afghanistan in the first place and why they basically let Saddam slip through the mountains into Pakistan following the invasion. 
Um, now, if we really want to go deep, we also know that one, uh, George H.W. Bush was almost likely a long-term uh, operative in the CIA, right? We know this. Uh, we know that there's like a huge nexus of like this George yeah. first George Bush the first, not W, right? Sorry, H yeah, H W H W H W. Yeah, I mean he was okay. director of the CIA under Reagan. He yeah. was. He yeah. He was. He was. He was appointed to that, and like he's yeah. never been in the yeah. CIA before. Uh, but we're giving him this job, this this like regional party figure. But yeah, back when the CIA was basically just in a wasps only club. Well, and remember, he was he was uh, naval intelligence in World War II. And went to Yale and was in Skull and Bones. Like that is that checks every box for CIA recruitment in the period that he was in he was in college. So not to mention his grandfather, I think, was also like a like Prescott Bush. I mean, I'll, I guess I don't even have to bring that up, do I? Right. Um, yep, the Nazi sympathizer. Yeah, I'm, right. I'm pretty sure he also knew the Roosevelts. I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. So anyway, so there's that. And there is also the connection between uh, oil, CIA, and this and the Saudi royal family. So now I don't. I've never. I've always felt like the stuff, like the physics of you know thermite or you know how is uh-huh. it they found how is it they, how is it they found those passports and how is it they found those passports in the streets? I think all that's kind of a red herring. What you really have to do is like you know follow the money and follow the history and the and the connections. And I think it's pretty clear. Uh, that you know, and there was a report on Bush's desk, like telling him it was going to happen, and he just said willfully ignored it. So, well, so so, can you draw the conclusion? Because I'm not I'm not sure what the conclusion is. I mean, the conclusion is, the conclusion is, uh, there's probably there's well, there's certainly some level of Saudi royal involvement, possibly some element of like deep state actors tied to Bush, uh. That pushed that maybe that, I'm sure Bush didn't know about it personally. Like the front facing guy doesn't know about that kind of shit. But there's, you know, there's some stuff going on there behind the scenes for sure. Stuff going on there behind the scenes is in like it was willfully engineered or willfully yes. like ignored. Which one? A, a little both. A little both. On the grapevine, they were hearing like they were hearing like, oh, there's something about to happen. I think like even oh, what the fuck is that guy's name? Wesley Clark, whatever his name is, the head, former head of the CIA, I think, or something. Right. I'm there probably getting one, wrong. Yeah, there's that documented case. There's the one documented like case. I think it's Clark. Yeah, where he's basically like, we knew something was happening, and and nobody did what was supposed. Like the king did not line up his pawns. The way it was supposed to to protect against the freaking rook, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. Like I, I don't know how I don't know how widespread that was. I'm I'm gonna go on record and say you know I think that that like the engineering thing's pretty nuts to me, Jake. I'm not gonna lie to you. Well, look, why was that, why, that, did, why did why did Bush, why did Bush why did Bush insist nuts. on finish reading my pet goat? I need to establish an <laughs> alibi. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, all right. I mean, all right. Jake. Look. Right. Uh, like, if you can accept the premise that like Saudi royals and that's a pretty big family has some had definitely had some connection to nine eleven. I you don't didn't think let me finish. You didn't let me finish what I was going to say, which is um, part that I do think that there are, that there is a sort of like you know weird kind of like like weird non responsiveness to this urgent news. You know, and so I don't know if it was willfully ignored, but that's 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 just never sat right. 
that's very strange. Like that's a it's a strange reaction to a terrorist attack. Like, and it's it's not like uh, I guess there was, it was in, unprecedented in some ways, but like uh, oh, Bush just know, sitting well, there reading, doing like the read aloud with the kids while nine eleven's happening. Is that? Well, I mean, so when I the mean, first weird, when the first but... plane hits the tower, he's still reading. He's informed of it. And he makes the political calculus that this is that they don't quite know what's happening yet, and and because of that, if he's seen to be sort of like cutting everything short, flying off the handle, and and like going out and and right, doing right, something right, 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 right. like brash and immediate, that looks bad for him. And then yeah. you and then on top of that, you also have the fact that what did he do like like as the the World Trade Center rubble was still burning. He gets up and he says, "Everybody, go back to your lives. Everybody, go back to shopping." Like he didn't. He he wanted to use. He wanted to use the the terrorist attack as a as as a blank check to continue American empire, without actually riling up. Uh, too much the American populace into a kind of fervor that he couldn't control, and and I think when you when you're looking at like the first the first you know year or two of the response that that's what it was he kept over and over again saying you know this is about terrorism it's not about Islam blah 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 and it's only you know once you start getting uh, into the run up into the Iraq War and in the aftermath of that that it starts to change in political character and the administration recognizes that it does need to have a kind of um, like civilizational like existential civilizational threat narrative in order to continue justifying this yeah if if I, if I could just respond about the goat, because I've heard about the story with the goat and him reading the story with the goat, I actually find just a psychological kind of shock um, explanation perfectly plausible. It, it's not that I think, you know, W is a fucking brain genius, but, you know, he probably knew enough American history to realize that, you know, just towers getting nuked in the middle of New York City, metaphorically speaking. Um, you know, it is pretty unprecedented, and he was, you know, he was probably hoping for a less eventful presidency than that. I think he also <laughs> wanted to find out how the story ended. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be so, surprised. Like, that, so, yeah, so I, I'm not I'm not breaking out the corkboard and the red string for, for that stuff. Like, I, I think the world is so much more like, uh, um, I don't know, like. Well, I'm not- uncoordinated think, and tragic than that worldview. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think I think the other thing to to remember about the um the intelligence agencies in the United States is that they are absolutely 100% not a monolith. They are rife with petty infighting and incompetence. Like like you know, you have there are upwards of like a dozen different, like, completely separate autonomous departments who are all nominally trying to do the exact same thing, and their continued existence and funding is dependent upon them being the ones to get the results where other departments are not. There, there, is, a, there is a structural competition in, in, the, 
uh, in the way that the intelligence services operate, that means it is actually it is actually um, institutionally disincentivized for them to work together to pool their intelligence resources. I mean, that was the entire reason that the Department of the, of Defense was created and instituted in the first place. And and even that has been just a complete disaster because you know, they, they couldn't actually do it without basically sweeping aside the entire existing intelligence apparatus. And they just weren't prepared to do that. And especially with something like intelligence, there's also guys doing like off the books operations. And I'm sure that there's plenty of funding for sources for these agencies and for that kind of stuff that doesn't come from the government. <laughs> You know? Yeah, I've kind of like to me like the best metaphor I feel like for like all these intelligence agencies and like some and and like basically the state. It's like um, you guys probably have heard of that series, The Boys, right? About you know, which is you know, it's just like this like crazy take on superheroes where it's like, what would they be like in real life? And they're just coked up, incompetent, like psychopaths with who are who have superpowers, right? And like, what's funny about like the about the series is is you see these people. And once you take away their powers, they're really just pathetic idiots. Like, they don't know what the fuck they're doing. But the problem is, is their powers and the fact that they have, like, a monolithic corporation backing them, right? Like, these two things basically means they're immune from just any consequences. And I kind of feel like that's sort of how, like, a good chunk of the CIA, the the freaking NSA, all the whole state security apparatus, it's, they're like these fucking giants, that like fuck up all the time are incompetent as hell, but nobody's gonna do shit. Cause like, what the fuck are you gonna do to like incompetent wasp Superman? Like you ain't gonna do shit. Like shut the fuck up, sit down. You know? Not as good a metaphor as any for, uh, you know, like patriarchal decadent state power. <laughs> Cause it's both, right? Like, uh, People use the the kind of like a decadence thing as a way of you know talking about like gender and weakness in a way that's reactionary, but um but I mean you know really like strong elements of the state are also decadent you know the most you know, like masculine people in the society like um the the whole the whole like you know violent backbone of the system is. I mean, you just know, look degenerated. at the fucking special forces. Look at the SEALs. Like, what was that story that came out? Like, one of these SEALs just, he was just a raving psychopath. Like, he's just, like, the these SEALs are acting like fucking frat boys. Just, like, raping Green Berets, right. slaughtering villages. Just acting like the most psychotic, insane, just testosterone, just fueled frat assholes. You know? It's like, yeah, like, Call of Duty. Shouting yeah, everybody stars, thinks yeah. like everybody thinks like these guys are like these cool, cold, RoboCop esque like professionals. Fuck that! They're not. They're, these guys aren't like fucking GI Joe. These guys are freaking. They're 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 a fucking football team on on the rampage in a sorority house. Well, and 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 that is that is like the you could say the moral the moral perils of having a volunteer army, right? This is why this is why you know bring out some old chapter and verse like this is part of why communists call for a popular militia because you basically if you're going to have some kind of something like that you want to have something that is a total mobilization of the society and is thus uh you know democratized in a way by you know having representatives from everybody within whatever it is right whereas opposed to 
you know, with the with a with an army like this, one, you basically insulate the you insulate it from any kind of democratic uh, accountability because most of the public isn't in it, and so or they don't even know somebody who's in it, so they don't have any stakes in the conflict really materially. So they're not going to push back or demand anything of their government. The other thing is you've created a sortition mechanism to basically filter in uh, poor people and also just insane psychopaths who just want to kill people <laughs> in a socially sanctioned way. Um, well, I, the one thing that I would say, the one thing that I would say in response to that is the IDF. I mean, yeah, but that's a, that's a, I mean, it, it's, I guess yeah, the rules are different as a colonial state, but. Unlike well, yeah, the United States. United States is a settler colonial state. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, this is kind of the problem, though, is that, like, who, who, because, I mean, okay, in terms of, like, you know, culture jamming, like, you know, tactical advocacy, if you want to be, like, a, you know, an Abraham Lincoln communist, like, and, you know, join the Republican Party and try to, like, you know, do some troll shit. Like bring trying trying to bring back the draft on like you know small R Republican grounds is an excellent you know troll move or whatever. But I do think there's a reason that only the most reactionary people in our society favor that, right? Like is that the kind of entity that this is is I mean like I'm not saying that you know that like you know Spain right now is like a real just place you know it has this like legacy of colonialism that's built in, but in a settler colonial society like you would effectively have to like break up the entity somehow to like change the nature of it like or well, yeah that's, that's why you want to be a popular a, militia which would yeah. be sort of like more like the fire department that would be based upon like regions and neighborhoods and it would just kind of be you know so you'd it'd be more like the national guard than it would be like a full-on you know tip of the spear military thing i mean like the only reason why the right wing is support this whole like like people's army or whatever people's militia is because in the back of their mind, what they want is localism. What they basically want is for society to just become like this Jeffersonian freehold nightmare where it's like, yeah, again, it's the whole United States of the petty tyrant, the petty pot property tyrant, where it's like every man has his own property and every man is his, 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 his plot of land is his domain. And, you know, he's going to have his own, his own, uh, right, right. right. But, but what they're thinking of is, they're thinking something like that, but then, like, if somehow, sometimes these people also want to back the draft, or come, the draft coming back, right? Like, this is the context that we're bringing up these people in, because you're not wrong about the association, but there's this weird Hegelian game going on as, okay, if I sign my body away to the federal government that I hate, they'll make a man out of me, and then I can come back and, you know, be a Jeffersonian Uberman. Right, but that's what we have now, though. You don't need a draft for that, right? Like, you can just go do that. In fact, now's, now, now's probably the time to join the military, honestly. I mean, you see this inconsistency with the Trump support. It's like, the deep state, but, like, the military's cool. So, like, when we assault the freaking, when we assault the Capitol building, like, oh, all these, these fucking soldiers are just going to activate, like, Manchurian candidates and come to the rescue. And it's like... Capitol Hill is the military, and the military is the, is Capitol Hill. Like, there is no difference, you fucking idiots. Obviously, of course, the American imperialism is far from over. It's, we're, there's, as well pointed out, there's a pivot towards Southeast Asia. Again, uh, there's gonna, probably going to be a lot... They're basically going to continue to be doing, like, shadow operations in Africa, which they were doing 
from Obama all throughout the Trump administration. I'm sure there's still stuff like that going on now. Uh, they're going to continue to do drone strikes and so on. But we really should reckon and look back at the past 10, 20 years at just the sheer amount of chaos and suffering that we've really inflicted upon the Middle East, pursuing just a completely like flat, unimaginative uh, attempt to project like our idea of like what you know i mean really it's all about resources but narratively i think a lot of these people convince themselves that they're projecting american power and like helping to modernize a backward region or some shit like that not only that but like the ideology because like correct me if i'm wrong right it's like one of the other things that's different it's like when when like for example when the united states invaded iraq like it wasn't like like okay like in previous eras okay like take for example like the invasion of japan like, the Americans were, like, smart enough to know that, like, we're not getting rid of the government. We're not getting rid of the old, whatever, whatever, the Horihito regime, whatever the fuck, right? We're not trying some of these guys for war crimes. Like, not really. Or if we do, it's going to be the small fry because these people basically know how to run things. And if we just get rid of them, Japan's not going to be a functioning society. So, like, they, they knew they had to, like, you know, break bread with those old, whatever, the old regime to some extent, right? Same thing with West, for West Germany. That's why so many Nazis ended up working for us. With Iraq, we went in there, and we had, like, it, it, it really just felt like an instance where, like, the West drunk, drank its own Kool-Aid. And it just, like, you know, like, okay, you know, like, Chomsky is always going on, like, okay, um... Free markets for you, the working man, but like state control for us, the rich and shit. Okay. Yeah. This no, one, it's like it's still it. It's still it, but like they went in there and they're like, "Oh no, we'll we'll do neoliberalism here." Like they'll 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 openly accept it, and it's like, first of all, you can't do that in 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 in, in Iraq. Like, say what you will about like at Saddam, like he was a fucking animal, but like he even like there was a rash a rationale to like his kind of fashy protectionism which which is like look like i need to like like shore up my economy so that like my economy can develop so like when i do engage in trade i'm on like even ground i can negotiate from like a position of strength and not just be like every other third world country where i basically just have to like just let foreign interests come in and just rape the shit out of us economically the americans just were like yeah, no, um, the Baath Party, you guys are gone, fuck you. Got rid of all these technocrats that could have helped them, that could have kept, like, society, like, sanguine. And they just neoliberalized the country, and it just went to shit. Well, and, and they, like, did the same, they did the same thing in Afghanistan, and they said the same yeah. thing that they said after they did shock doctrine in the former Soviet Union. They go, well, see, the problem is, like, too many people here want, like, to do too socialist-y, like, government-based policies. And that's why the free market stuff isn't working. Yeah, you're, like, you're, the you're muscles not, in your wrists are going away because of welfare. So we can't, you know, like welfare is evil because it makes you like weak and gay. So like, let's <laughs> let's like, I'm sorry, but like if you listen to some of these guys, like that's almost what it sounded like. Yeah, yeah. No, you, they they knock a place over yeah. and then they like they basically blame the people there for not believing hard enough in free markets. You know. Yeah, and I think you know uh, part of that part of part of the reason why that's. Uh, been a thing that that you were talking about when they uh, went into places like Japan, uh, West Germany, they they had a kind of respect for those regimes, um, and and I think when you when you look at places where 
the U.S. just fundamentally disrespects the actual people who li- like not just the the everyday on the ground people, but like the people who are actually fucking running the place. Uh, you, you look at places like in the Middle East. You look at places like especially Latin America, um, where where those where the in- the United States intervenes in those areas. It's basically the same pattern. Right, I mean, you look at Nicaragua, you you look at uh, Guatemala, um, you look at to even to an extent like, um, yeah, exactly, and and it it follows like is basically the the same kind of patterns, and the only thing that tends to that tends to save it is an existing uh, an existing power structure that is distinct from the prior ruling regime that already has a base of economic and social power. And, you know, at that point, the United States government, if, if this, if this local elite is willing to play ball with multinational corporations or international corporations and the United States government, then they basically get a free reign and they get the backing of the United States government and they can usually solidify uh, their power over the country. If that doesn't happen, then basically what you get is is civil war and chaos as the United States government uh, continues to back some of the most vile reactionary forces in the country. Yeah, look what they did in Libya. That place is a Mad Max hell zone. Yeah. I mean, th- there's also ISIS. Do you think, like, when... W- in the anti-war movement, people were like, you know, something's, you know, something's real bad's going to happen if you knock over the government of Iraq. Like, they didn't know they were talking about ISIS, but, you know, that's like one of many things. Like, um, well, uh, we didn't know, we didn't know about ISIS in particular, but there were a lot of us who were saying, hey, if you knock this guy out, he's actually been one of the, one of the biggest, um, like, bulwarks against uh al-qaeda running rampant in the middle east like al-qaeda in order in order to effectively operate in the middle east al-qaeda needs a base of uh a base to operate out of within the middle east that is not saudi arabia and that happens to be like iraq would be the perfect place for it and saddam fucking hated bin laden and al-qaeda well yeah he's a secular fascist like essentially right and so, and so, all of us were saying, like, "Hey, if you get rid of, if you get rid of Saddam, you get rid of like the 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 current government in Iraq, you're going to open up a can of worms that is just going to lead to Al Qaeda, but like thousand times worse." And lo and behold, and I was saying this back in high school, so you know, you don't actually have to be smart to figure this out. Right. Oh, this is what everybody and their grandmother was saying this. It's just, oh my god. Well, anybody, anybody who actually paid attention, very few people actually paid attention though, and it was very, very difficult to pay attention because the only people who were talking about this were basically labeled cranks by the by the mainstream media. Yeah, like like that whole that whole period of history, like it just it and honestly, like it, it, I honestly feel like the thing about Americans is is. We genuinely are like narcissists. 
we are a fucking nation of narcissists. Like we really think that we really think we're like the only protagonists of history or some shit. Like we're the we're the heroes of the story, and like everybody else is like a guest a guest star or like an NPC that's just there to prop up our own fucking egos. And it's just like when when you see that translated into like you know national defense or foreign policy, it's just a disaster from from bottom from top to bottom. It's just wow. And like the thing that gets me is like again to kind of go back to like the thing that that uh, that. Uh, Victoria Gracchus was getting at, yeah, like, that's sort of, like, why nobody wanted to hear this shit. It really was, like, Americans were just, like, you know, don't, 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 what is it, what's that saying? Don't, don't yuck my yum, basically. Don't, don't kill my buzz, bro. This shall kill my vibe. I mean, you, you try and trace out the rationality of this stuff, and there is, you know, some of it is, if you just keep every country in the Middle East, but your allies, Saudi Arabia and Israel in a state of ongoing chaos in a way that's good for you, uh, especially if it makes resource extraction maybe harder for you, but also harder for everybody else. You know, in a lot of ways, I think, you know, the reason why like Cheney identified it as like the vital choke point of civilization, because it's like, if, Hey, it, it, sometimes it seems like the resource control is less about us having the stuff and more about everyone else not having it. Yeah. That was a theory I heard from like a lot of lefties where they were saying like, we don't need the oil because like america has plenty of oil you know like even though like after world war ii like we 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 ate a chunk of our oil supplies like arming ourselves to like go fight in the european theater and in the pacific right like we still have plenty of oil you know the only reason why we made like the alliance with saudi arabia was because like the americans were like okay if we have like another world war scenario right and obviously like nuclear weapons were not part of that equation at that time it's like we need somebody else's oil supply to like basically refit our military and that's why they kind of started you know going to saudi arabia but like after that basically you know with the existence of nukes that was not like an issue so america doesn't need the oil but but the calculation was china needs the oil Western Europe might need the oil, you know? Other, like, countries who are, who are, like, economically rising up might need the oil. So what you do in the Middle East is, if you can't control the oil, like, basically the way, the way it was explained to me was like this. It's like, imagine, like, a Western, where you had, like, a bunch of, like, freeholder farmers, like, uh, homestead people, right? And they all have their own plot of lands, and they're, they're, they're making their own freaking gardens and, and crops. But they all share like one well and basically like the united states which is like this like whatever like stereotypical like oil proctor or whatever it's like he's looking at all these homestead people and he's like you know these people they're they're gonna they're not as strong as i am they're not as big as i am right like they're not as wealthy as i am but they're getting there how do i keep them from getting uh as wealthy as i am or as powerful as i am let me get control of that watering well i get control of that i have a monopoly on that Right, I get to determine how fast and how much they grow. Right, that was almost the calculation. And I guess like the other calculation was, okay, if we can't control, it, then like contaminated behind beyond recognition. You know, if I can't get the oil, you know, it's just it's less of like we need the oil, and it's more of like not letting our enemies get the oil. Well, and on top of that, the United States and Canada, in order for their oil to be economically viable, it has to be fairly expensive per barrel. So if you have, if you have plentiful 
cheap and easily available oil flooding the market, that makes that makes a huge sector of the U.S. energy market essentially non-viable. But I will say, even you know, sometimes though there do seem to be things where the the thinking seems to be disconcertingly one-dimensional. I, I was thinking so, like another angle on the pullout, right, in Afghanistan. The way that I ever heard of like what occurred was was during like the first pullout in the Gulf War, right? Like the first pullout. The only, you know, <laughs> when you know, and um, the second time in, in our lives was, I mean, hold on. So like the, the first time in our lives that the U.S. had to like tuck tail and leave Iraq and be like, okay, never mind. Right after the U.S. had, you know, funneled, like, weapons and, like, psyched up the Kurds for their national struggle. And then they pulled out. This was kind of a big, the massacre of the Kurds that happens afterwards. Saddam gets, you know, a lot of his ethnic cleansing bona fides for when I feel good about calling him a fascist, right? Like, happens at about that point. And it was kind of considered, like, a... And I don't know, and I think it's somewhat true that, you know, it was being used by cynical political actors as a cudgel. I don't know. Uh, I've never really, like, heard of, like, a good way to explain that political context to somebody in the, you know, contemporary anarchist movement who is, you know, really invested in, like, the Kurdish national struggle or uh, Rojava or, you know, like, that kind of thing. Like, because... It was one of those things where I think it was, you know, sort of, I don't know, for, for a while, you know, there were like, you know, Kurds that were very pro-U.S. And yeah, I don't know. That was the like original place that I had encountered uh, the Kurds in foreign policy as, like, some, as something that bothers me about the way that like sympathetic peoples who deserve national autonomy and their national struggles can be like pawned off against each other. And, and like by big states, it's, it's just something very, there's something about that, that, uh, you know, it's genuinely revolting. And if, you know, representative government means anything, it would be like kind of, <laughs> you know, in some way trying to like prevent these horrors, like, and I know that the government doesn't actually work that way. You know, a friend of the show, C. Derek Varn, and his uh, obsession with Christopher Lash in part is because of the way that, you know, Lash kind of takes the anti-war movement's modus operandi of, like, stopping American imperialism. You know, let's not be passive subjects in the, in the imperial core. Let's do something about this, right? Like, which I, you know, it's, I think that's a noble imperative. And how the anti-war movements keep running up, you know, against, like, the hard walls of, the, like, the structures of American imperialism and how they, you know, more or less, essentially, at the end of the day, they couldn't take out the underlying apparatus, no matter how hard they tried. Like, and it's good to hear that there is some, like, popular legacy of the anti-war movement, or even if, if is, I don't even know if that's really, like, the doing of the movement or if it's just the ambient unwiseness of running a war for you know 20 years just the machiavellian incompetence like and by by the standards of machiavellian like 
you know, do your business quick. And, you know, if, it, if it's got to be dirty, do it right up front, right now, do it. And then you can, you know, smooth the bomb on later. Drawing a war out for 20 years is just instrumentally irrational. Like, yeah, I mean, I do think I do think the anti-war movement does have an effect. I don't think it dismantles American imperialism, but to do that, you would basically need a revolution. <laughs> you know, you'd, you would be talking you'd, you'd be talking about a, almost a, a complete almost you'd almost need a complete change in the mode of production because so much of stuff is tied into like military Keynesianism. So that's a that's a very tall order to ask of a protest movement. But I do think it actually it ha- it has I think culturally served to shift things just a little bit to make it so that you know the the Bush uh, the, these different governments are unable to completely prosecute these wars without w- with full impunity. There's there's limits to what they know the public will accept or what they'll get pushback on. I think it does have an effect. There's a pretty big proportion of like young people in the like late you know 60s or in early 70s that were open to this line of argument. It's not like totally impossible that people would accept this, especially now when people believe you know that horse paste will cure them of a, a disease. You know, like wait, what do you mean? Like, I'm sorry. I don't know. Like, sh- sh- like what people are prepared to accept the like the strangeness of an explanation or the inconvenience or the or the weirdness or whatever is no those rules don't apply remember 20 years ago when it felt like rules applied well then 911 happened and everything fucking unraveled like slowly but surely and it became the world that we know now like a bunch of rules that we understood then that that were only subverted on the margins eventually would not apply from, you know, like from Alex Jones ranting on the radio to like Donald Trump's followers, you know, becoming too conspiratorial for him because he wants credit for his vaccine. Or to Biden running an obvious grift on the progressive population and and winning anyway, because people said, well, I guess. I mean, I I talked to virtually nobody uh, from people like across the the political spectrum who like actually believed in biden who who and and the people who do are fucking bug nuts right yeah they're ter- they're terrifying and there are not that many of them yeah there's not a single person i know who likes biden who's like i'm a bidenist no they don't exist everybody's like well i mean it doesn't matter anyway we just need to not have that other guy, and I don't really care beyond that. And and so like nothing matters. <laughs> like so so how do you do how do you do anything in that kind of environment where everything is hyper individualized? Everybody is alienated, not just like from from national level politics, but like politics at all levels and beyond that, even their own fucking communities. And and you have people who feel like they have no sense of control or agency in in their own lives, in their own work, in where they live. Like, what do you actually do with that? Because because there isn't there isn't any clear cut way of giving them agency. Yeah, like I think, like I, I remember, like this is this is what we were. This is a point we touched on. We were doing like our our reading group, like with the what is it the 
what is it, that the collection of communist literature, right? And we were reading about Kautsky's concept of the, the lumpen prole. And yeah, like, yeah, like basically I feel like that whole, whatever, the mentality of the lumpen prole of just like, I'm going to just get mine, Jack. Like it's all bunk. It's all bullshit. You know, like nothing sacred. Just, just get what you want. Get, get, get yours, Jack. Right. I feel like that mentality is just hegemonic now amongst everybody, even like the most nice liberally person, right? Basically, d- deep down, they all think like the ship is sinking, every man for themselves, who cares? Yeah, okay, like, like maybe the government is corrupt, maybe everything that you weird leftists are saying is true. But there's nothing we can do about it. I just want to live. I'll I'll let this guy get in there and sh- and just pilot this machine for a while. At least like I'll. It's like it's like people's standards have gone so low. It's like I'd rather die in a hospital bed with some morphine than on the ho- on the street. Like that's how low people's like political horizons have become. I mean, you basically have to join. Uh, that you have to you have to basically speak to that alienation, and then people have to find a way to find ways to address it collectively. Now it's hard to say what shape that that will take, or if it will happen at all. Uh, but I think that the part of the re- the part of the reason this thing has been able to float on the way that it has is because there have been conditions. It's been able to be papered over by uh, conditions of non scarcity, particularly in the realm of consumer goods. But if that starts to dry up. And capitalism has to manage scarcity uh, through its own uh, means. That's going to generate resentments, and it's going to generate pushback. Uh, and that's one of the few things that like gives me hope going forward. The question is, uh, will it happen fast enough uh, for the for the proletariat to basically be able to collectively grab a hold of this crisis, or will the capitalists through there's through the market and through the state cauterize society or not cauterize, but uh, will they basically take like scorched earth tactics to the body of the social itself um, in order to, in order to secure their position and thus eventually trigger a collapse scenario that takes the whole thing down with it. Uh, I feel like since we're, we had somebody dip out and we're about an hour in, should we stop there? Or what do you think? I mean, I don't, I, I, I guess I don't think the, I don't know. I think that we have like more more or less stable forms of like disintegration that like you kind of never know when it's going to go. <laughs> and like we're waiting for the phase change where the you know the declining thing, you know, truly bottoms out. But over the last 20 years I've learned you never challenge worse. Words of Chris Rock, I think. Um, you know, just like Anytime you think that something's gotten to its nadir and that it just can't go on, you know, you have to see what kind of structures you're dealing with. And then there's just an unpredictable element that, you know, there's a whole world system out there that you're going to have a hard time accounting for because you're not God. And, you know, like, even if you have a really sophisticated model, like, these things are hard to predict anyway. Yeah, honestly, I kind of just feel like, 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 even if we start seeing, like, a severe scarcity crisis... Right. Like I remember I was talking to a friend of mine and we were talking about like eco fascism. Right. And I was having a hard time, like grasping the concept of eco fascism. 
Because, like, the only thing I could, I could think of is just, like, nothing's really going to change. It's just going to get, like, what we have now is just going to be on steroids. So, like, when scarcity just happens, my freaking Guido-ass Italian relatives are just going to be like, fuck the Mulyans just harder. You know? It's just like that. That's sort of like how I how I feel about that. Like the the way that things are structured, it's just what we already have. Like that's the only way that's going to get channeled, and it's going to get channeled to through that. But like just even more, just extreme. You know, I mean, like that's sort of like how I feel like the the Capitol riots where it's like it wasn't really anything new. Like that's the thing that I always I was always baffled when liberals like were looking at and they were like fucking clutching their pearls. It's like. These people were always here. These people were always here. They were always fucking... Like, even when I was in high school, I remember, like, fucking scumbag, like, conservatives going on, like, there will be another civil war. The South shall rise again. Like, all these people with these, like, fucking insane murder fantasies, power fantasies. Whatever. I mean, that's, like, that's kind of like what the book was it. The, the Postman was about, right? Like, the, the author, was it, David Brin or whatever his name was? Like, he wrote that book as a response to, like, this kind of insane libertarian militia movement that wanted to, like, the collapse of the federal government and a return to feudalism, but with a Jeffersonian, like, veneer, basically, right? And it's like, these people were always here. It's just like... They were, it's just like they got ginned up enough to like actually try it and then they just got fucking curb stomped. So, like, I, to, to, def, to, well, to defend the, yeah, the liberals, you know, who are at brunch currently, like, and I'm jealous. I'm jealous that they're at brunch. Like, I'm just going to be real. But, um, like, the right, right wing riots are pretty rare, like, in our, like, political specter like sometimes you have like a riot that gets ugly like but it usually is a little more politically amorphous or is something like you got you know in the last like 10 years of the black freedom movement like uh, like so there is this like weird new element and it's it's kind of, it was kind of the moment that the whole thing spun out of Trump's control because I don't believe that Trump actually intended to make that happen, which is kind of like it's kind of scarier if you think that Trump didn't intend it. If you think that Trump is in control of it and that he like you know he re- he really like knew what he was saying and how it was going to be understood, like then you you have a, you have like a power fantasy exactly. So if you plug that basic understanding into what happened there, <laughs> you know, he, like, he, 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 he got off stage. He, he, got, he got off stage and, and like, pe- people started asking him questions and he looks around to his advisors all confused and he's, like, sca- he's scared. He's scared of, like, because he didn't realize that this is what could happen. You saw, you saw that clip where he's, like, at that rally and he's like, you should all get the vaccine. I'm not saying, I'm just saying, you should all get the vaccine. And they all booed his ass. Like, that, that made me realize, like, oh, this guy's not going to become president again. Well, and, and that there, there was kind of like a sea change. And you know what? For a lot of um, swamp side like uh, history, we had an early interest in, in the alt right um, before. It, well, I mean, probably as it was becoming like more culturally relevant. 
But ultimately, we ended up kind of burning out on the sort of, how do I put this? Like, positing that fascism was the first threat right now. Whereas, you know, you have, like, the cops <laughs> and the entire, like, American capitalist military state. And they're yeah, way. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, this is what I kept I'm trying to tell. This is what I kept trying to tell all like my liberal friends. I actually got, like, like, I'm not kidding you. I got into a fucking argument with one of my Italian relatives who's a leftist, right? And he kept saying that the, 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 the storming of the Capitol was like a march on Rome, right? And I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, look, in the minds of, like, if you want to say that these people are like, basically fascist just by like their ideology yeah like their ideology more or less checks all the points more or less yeah i would i would now agree with that yeah right but what i would say is they're only fascist ideologically and that's about it like like i was basically trying to tell them like look in order for fascism to like succeed the state itself along with, like, a significant chunk of the bourgeoisie, has to be, like, willing to be like, all right, let's hear these guys out. You know, let's see. Like, they might have some good ideas. You know, we're, you know, uh, the machinery's not running. The empire's failing. Uh, let's, let's hear some, uh, spit, spitball some ideas at us, right? I mean, like, I was reading this book. It was about the Wehrmacht, the, the German military. And one of the things that this book kind of showed was it tried to, like, this, 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 this um, destroy this notion that, like, there was a separation between the Nazi party and the military. Because, like, in Germany, they do the same games here in America where it's like, okay, the, the Nazis were bad. Don't say anything about the German soldier. He was just, you know, he was just doing his duty. Uh, they're off limits. The SS and the Nazis, yes, it was all their fault. But don't say shit about the military. And what this book was saying was, no bullshit, like... You saw what the military's like concerns were, what their objectives were, what their foreign policy was. Like the concept of a Wehrmacht, uh, not Wehrmacht, was it um, the Liebenstrom, right? Like their 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 security Breathing concerns around. with Russia and Eastern Europe and Poland. Like that was not something invented by the Nazis whole cloth. That was like always a thing in German culture and in German society, and that was a thing that like the German military and the state always had an interest in. And like to be kind of honest with you, you can't really tell like it was like it was like a chicken or the egg scenario. It's like you couldn't tell like okay, who came up with the concept of the Liebenstrom first? Like was it the Nazis or was it the military? And what you kind of realize is like organically speaking, like yeah, like this just came into being because this was always there in German society and the German state. So like you can't easily like separate the two. And that's my point about fascism is that like. When fascism gets into power, like it's it's because its interests align with the state enough to where the state it's like we'll give you guys a shot, we'll we'll let you into the halls of power, and that's what I said to my relative, and I said like, look at what happened with Mussolini. All the bourgeoisie in Italy and all the military figures who were conservative fucking psychos were like afraid of like Bolshevism or whatever taking hold of Italy. And, like, literally the king of Italy, you know, under the coercion of, like, his military generals, right, were like, okay, let's hand over the keys of the kingdom to this fucking wacko with the, with the fucking jackboots, right? And, like, 
We didn't see that with the Capitol riots. We just didn't see it. No. You know? We did no, not. No, we didn't. But but we are we are seeing something like I don't know, like something that was always underlying not just Trumpism, but like a lot of American conservatism, like evangelical stuff and some of the nastier parts of right wing talk radio. Like you're saying you're saying that, that that's always been there, and I know what you mean, because there has been that like really deeply nasty element in American society for a long time. I remember there was like there was this debate between Douglas Lane, C. Derek Varn, and Michael Brooks, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, right? And I remember Douglas Lane was basically he really bought like what the official narratives of the conservatives were, which is like we're classical liberals. We we believe we believe in liberalism more than you do, and blah 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 blah. All this other bullshit, right? And what Varn and what Brooks was saying was, no, bro. Like these assholes who say that they're classical liberals or they believe in liberal values and all that. Like that is a veneer. That is not real. If you look closely, these guys are basically reactionaries who are like masquerading in liberal clothes. Or they're too stupid to realize what they are. Right, right, right. So that element's always been there in American society. But I, I, and I think, like, there was this element of the Trump presidency where at first the far right thought that they, you know, that they were moving Trump. But they didn't realize, you know, who was the Ouija board and who was the little, like, plastic thing. Because they got played by Trump. This weird, I don't know, but this like weird apex at the Capitol riot of like, I don't know how many of these people are the same as like the Nazis because a lot of like the, a lot of like the official like Nazi types, like, you know, the official, you know, there's like an official CP, there's official Nazis. They don't like this stuff. Like they, they, they recognize that they got played by Trump. And so this is actually, I think something, this is more like, like a fascist ideology, something more organically reactionary. Well, I mean, with the capital, with the capital riot, here's the thing about the capital riots. I think there's this kind of mix where people, you know, of course, like mainstream liberals want to make it like they're 9 11. Or the beer hall push, which I find kind of insulting almost. I mean, that's that, yeah. that, would be a, that would be a closer historical analog. Especially because of the way that the beer hall push was treated at the time. You get this counter signaling where people are like, whatever, that was nothing. That was, like, that was a baked Alaska. He was there and there was the guy in the animal costume or whatever. But I, it wasn't nothing either because this kind of thing doesn't normally happen. Yeah, it is historically unprecedented. There normally is not this kind of uncont this kind of contested transfer of power between pres presidential administrations. Now, granted, uh, there's nothing necessarily legal about that. That's mostly a matter of institutional norms that have been consistently recognized. But the fact that that's not happening anymore uh, is a major, I would say, uh, indicator. And the fact that you basically had a bunch of people. You know, I mean, yes, obviously there were grifters. And there were people. There were, of course, uh, certainly uh, FBI agents out there uh, putting people up to this shit, just like there is with everything like this. They, there were also, I think, earnest uh, Q nut cases who were told by their president that the election was stolen, which, if right. if true, would be their duty to go and do something like that. Yeah. Right. 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 And I think I think Ezra, you're 
um, you're spot on with like, yeah, there were Nazis in there. There are people who are sort of explicitly white nationalist, um, uh, national socialist kind of people. Uh, but the vast majority of them are just like straight up incoherent fascists. And, right. and it's, it's a, it's a dynamic that has been building on the right for quite a while. Um, Karl Rove actually used used that segment of the base really effectively. In fact, so effectively that it backfired on the Bush administration. And it backfired on, on the GOP. Well, not the Bush administration had ended by that point. Because that's where the Tea Party came from. You know, and it... it you know, it, it has its it has its roots in the 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 sort of compromise between the neoliberal business wing of the GOP and the like the the essentially Christian fascist um, uh, base of the the GOP the the disaffected um, you know middle class petty bourgeois segment of the population with you know a fairly significant number of like white working class people but for the most part it's not the white working class doing it it's they're just disconnected from politics and in much the same way that almost everybody else is but the, but it is a real uh, fascistic movement that i think we are seeing gain some kind of coherency in q now, I don't think Q is actually going to be what makes it a thing, but I think it provides people with enough structure and with enough sense of, of community ties uh, among this reactionary right that somebody who is charismatic in the way that Trump is, but actually effective at rallying support for specific things to happen in a way that Trump never could have been has a breeding ground from which to recruit from. And I think that's what makes it that's what makes it dangerous, but it is still but it is still at this point in potentia. There is there is nothing really in Q itself that is anything other than a mostly incoherent rage at the way the world is and a desperate bid to seek some kind of some kind of truth or some kind of coherency in a chaotic and incoherent world to hold on to and and beyond that it hasn't yet become anything that's it for this time thanks again to victorian gravesend for sitting in i initially meant for 911 to be more of a jumping off point than to be a thing that completely took up the episode. Uh, at some point, I would like to talk about um, the real estate sector, you know, the current status of the COVID pandemic and the mad inflation and QE that went along with it, as well as climate stuff. But we'll have to get to that uh, at a future date. Next episode, we are doing another listener request. Uh, we will record that next week. It is called The Dictator's Handbook. Uh, and it should be an interesting uh, interesting look at a sort of quasi-Machiavellian book that's kind of written for a general lay audience. 
Uh, anyway, if you want to get a hold of us, email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. If you want to support the show, hit up our Patreon. And, uh, yeah. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.